For the past three weeks, we've been in a series called Who Me? And Who Me? is really geared around this idea that God not only can, but He wants to use all of us. And we anchored into a passage in Ephesians that declared that you are, in Christ Jesus, you are God's handiwork, that you're His masterpiece, that He wants to use you and is using you for His for his greatness, and he's got these specific things for you to do. Then, then today, as we head into Who Me, we want to frame it up around this idea of that we are ambassadors. We read these verses up top, but out of Second Corinthians, and it just says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. It's past tense. If you are here and you go, hey, man, you may be here and you're going, I don't get this Jesus piece at all, right? Then, then that's okay. Welcome. We're glad you're here. But there are some of you in the room that are going, I, I get the Jesus peace. He is mine. I am his. I've surrendered. He's forgiven me. Then, then in that context, then he's now declaring over you that the new has come. The old has gone. The new is here. We are. We are. It's a statement. It's, it's definitive, right? We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. Now, an ambassador is someone who puts him on display. An ambassador is one that that lives, but also speaks it. And notice what happens as we live as ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. So who me? Yes, you. Right. According to that verse, if you declare that you are a follower of Jesus, that, that you have any stake in Jesus at all, then what he says is you are his ambassador and he is making an appeal to the entire world through you. Who, me? Yes, you. God is making his appeal through you. Well, that, that frames up then, that, that concept then frames up your life in a whole new way. Because what that means is that you, you as an ambassador, put heaven, because an ambassador is one that is not in a country that's their own. Your citizenship is in heaven. And as a citizen of heaven, everything you do, you model for people who is Jesus, what is he like, what is heaven like, what does it mean to be a citizen? They look at you and what they should see is heaven. They should see Jesus. And this is done both through action which we talk about that a lot, right? And I'm a, I will preach till the day I die. Your, your movement needs to match your mouth, right? What you do, your actions need to back up what your mouth is saying, right? But, but along with that, though, your words become vital. Now, now they, they claim that ladies use 20,000 words, guys use 7,000. Not saying anything by that, just that's the facts according to Google, Right? I have five women in my house. I can vouch for those. Those are true. Okay? There's a whole lot of words in my house. But, it, but if we're honest, if we take 20,000 words and you, or you take your 7,000, there's a lot of times those words are just noise. There's a lot of time you're speaking, but it's, it's either you're trying to get something done, which men, let's be honest, that's how we work. We, we're getting stuff done, and so we use our words to get stuff done. Otherwise, we're just grunting, right? We don't need to do anything else. Women, you're painting the Milky Way and all kinds of stuff. Um, But there are times when you're 20,000 words that some of those words become extremely vital. Because you are trying to communicate something of extreme value. 
As an ambassador, I would dare say that there are moments when your words become so vital. And maybe, maybe a question to just kind of frame up this idea of being an ambassador. Let, let me ask it this way. What's the outcome if you don't? What's at stake if you don't? If you don't fulfill your role as an ambassador, if you don't speak, what's at stake if you don't? What's at stake if you speak, but you're not heard? Right? You ever had that conversation? You, you talk to someone and you think they heard you and they go away. And later you hear something. Tell you. You're like, I didn't, I didn't have that conversation. And they're like, uh, that's what I heard. Right? You speak, but you're not heard. What, what's at stake? What's at stake? Because I was reminded this week. My, my day off, which is Friday, which really wasn't a day off, I ended up officiating a memorial, right? And it was a sudden passing. Like there was no warning. And it's in moments like that that we're reminded how fragile really is, how fragile life really is. And I went home from the memorial and I get a phone call from a dear friend who someone in their family has passed suddenly. Like a double reminder in the same day, I'm going, okay, God, you're, you're trying to say something here. You're trying to remind me of something. Let me ask you this way. What's at stake with the people in your life if you don't, if you don't fulfill your role as an ambassador? What's at stake if you use words and they're not heard? And so this morning, what I want to do is I just want to walk through. I want to, I want to wrap us around an idea that I think when God calls us to be ambassadors, he also calls us to be extremely creative in how we communicate Christ. Maybe, maybe putting it, I'm, a, I'm not a big formula guy. I hate formulas. So it's kind of funny that I'm going to give you this, but maybe in a, in a formula sense, it goes like this, that you hear plus you feel. And when you hear and feel something, then you are moved to believe. And believe in that context, by the way, is motion. It's movement. It's going somewhere. Okay? So when you communicate Christ to somebody, your goal is, I want to see them move from here closer to Jesus. I want to see them grasp something in some way that it changes them. What I mean by this is, is you, when you believe something, you move. Right? When you believe something, you move. For example, a bunch of you after this are going to go to different stores. Some of you will go to Walmart. Some of you will go to Target. Some of you will go to the pet store. I don't know. Right? But you will go intentionally going, they have what I want. You believe that they have what you want, so you are moved to go there. Does that make sense? So in the case of Jesus, in the case of being an ambassador, if I'm going to share Christ with somebody, then what I've got to... Hope that they get, they have to hear it and feel it so that they believe and they move. Maybe a story will help to kind of frame this up. Um, Peter Rollins in his book Insurrection tells this, tells this story of a woman. and He says, there was once a woman who lost her child suddenly months after birth. And this woman took her child and she wrapped the infant up and she began to go about her town, going to everybody that she knew from doctors to magicians to wise men, going, somebody help me with my child. In the process of doing this, everyone she went to went, I can't help you. But she heard about this wise man who lived up on the mountain. And she was told that this wise man had special powers. 
And so she made the trek up the mountain to the wise man. And she, she got to the wise man and she said, can you help me with my child? And the wise man looked at her and said, I can help you. He said, what I want you to do is I want you to go and get a handful of mustard seeds from the home of someone who has never suffered loss. And once you have the mustard seeds, come back to me and I'll give you the appropriate spell for your child. She left immediately and went down into the town and she began to go door to door. And she began to ask people, have you ever suffered loss? And she kept looking for a home only to find that every home she went to had suffered loss. And in the process of hearing story after story after story, she began to process the loss of her own child. And in the midst of processing the loss of her own child, she was able to give the child a burial that was appropriate. Now, what's interesting about this story is the lady had already gone to how many people? Many, many, many. And she ends up with the wise men. What did the wise men know? What did she need to hear? What did she need to feel? His goal was that she would process the loss of her child. He knew that she needed to process the loss of her child, but what he needed to communicate was words like, I can help you. What happened in the moment he said, I can help you, her walls came down. She stopped running. She began to listen. In the midst of listening then, he he gave her something to do because let's be honest, any of us for our child, we would do anything in that situation if there was hope. And so he said, I have something for you to do. And then he told her to go and experience in community others who have lost. She heard it. She felt it. And she was moved to action. Our job is ambassadors. We are ambassadors of Christ. Who, me? Yes, you. You are an ambassador of Christ. As you go, we need to make sure. What is our goal? They move closer to Jesus. They need to hear our message. They need to hear our message, which means that we have to package truth in such a way that they can actually hear it, that people can actually receive it. This hearing concept, by the way, doesn't come just through physically hearing. Commercials have an amazing way of of grabbing this concept, this hearing and feeling and believing, right? They have an amazing way of doing this. Go ahead and look at this one real quick. What shall I do? Put myself by your side. What shall I do? Put myself. It just makes you want to be kinder. It's amazing. You see it, which is, is a form of hearing, right? I feel it. You know what I did instantly the first time I saw that commercial? Hey, girls, you got to come see this. You got to come see this. Why? Because it. I heard it. I felt it. I was moved to action with it. What's fascinating is, and I, I love it, men in the room. If you're competitive, you're like, "What is that kid doing?" Right? <laughs> if you're the dad, you're probably screaming that at him. Um, 
But what I love is that clip is actually taken out of a larger clip. And in the clip, the game is actually going on for a little while longer than what you see. And he actually comes from the other end of the ice all the way down to give a hand up. You see, something happens. Something is disarmed when it's put in such a way that you can hear it and feel it and then you remove. Don't believe me that commercials do this well. Try watching the commercials where they put the sad dogs on them. You know which ones I'm talking about, right? They put the sad dogs and if you don't turn it off, you are going to go get a dog by the end of the commercial. That one? Yeah. Why? Because they know. They know that if it's packaged in such a way, you will hear it. And if you can really hear it, you're going to feel it. And if you feel it, you will be moved to do something. When we were at Catalyst um, a few months ago, it, it was fascinating to me of how Compassion Child has completely changed their approach. Because you know what they're doing now? They're bringing people who were who were the compassion children, they're bringing them and having them tell you their story. Why? Because you really hear it when it's in story form from the person who experienced it and you feel it and then you're moved to go and get another one and then you get home and go, we have another one, right? How did this happen? Because you heard it, you felt it, and you were moved. There's a story in the Bible that picks up on this. If you have a Bible, turn to 2 Samuel it emphasizes this whole concept of hearing, feeling, and believing. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Someone in the room will, will get you one. But Second Samuel is about a quarter of the way into the Old Testament. And by the way, it's not just like in religious circles that this works, right? Or this, this is how we're wired. Um, you guys know Michael Jordan? What color shorts did Michael Jordan wear? North Carolina blue. Every single game underneath his Red Bull shorts. You know where long shorts came from? They were inspired by Michael Jordan. Why did he wear long shorts? To cover up his superstition of North Carolina blue because he had to wear North Carolina blue, right? Serena Williams, if you're familiar with tennis, wears the same pair of socks the entire weekend. Why? Because somewhere along the way, she felt the pain of loss and somewhere along the way, she heard that if you wear the same socks, it's going to help. And so she wears the same socks. Like, like this concept, this is how we're wired as humanity. And, and this story that, that we're heading into it picks up on this. So chapter 11, 2 Samuel chapter 11. It says, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David stayed in Jerusalem. Okay, so con- context that we're given, right? David is king, and, and David, when the, when the kings go off to war, David, for whatever reason, some say this was a mistake, others say that he'd been told to stay, but David stays home. That's the context we're given. They go off, they're fighting, they're winning. David is, is home in Jerusalem. Verse 2. One evening... David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba. Okay, now, if you don't believe God's got a sense of humor, right? David's up on his roof. He's looking down. There's a lady taking a bath, and her name is Bathsheba. Okay, like... Just acknowledge God's 
got a sense of humor, right? Of all the names on the entire planet, she had that one, right? Interesting what happens next. So he sends these people down. She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Now, to you, that may not mean much. But in Bible context, right, as David's story goes, David was once running away from King Saul, and he ended up in a cave, right, all alone and is scared, essentially, right? What happens is, in the midst of that, in the midst of that, God begins to bring men to him. One of those men that show up was Uriah the Hittite. This man, Bathsheba, is the wife of Uriah. Uriah previously had shown up in a cave and became, you might have heard this if you've been around the Bible, the mighty men of valor, David's 30 mighty men. One of them, this man, Uriah the Hittite. This is not just some random like, hey, I don't know who he is, some guy in your, your army over there. Like this is Uriah. This is the guy that showed up and he had David's back. This was one of his boys, right? He shows up. And now what, so, so David is entering it. Like there isn't like this, there's no connection and it's this distant thing that's about to happen, right? The, in this moment, David knows full well, this is Uriah. This is one of my boy's wives. Verse four, then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Then she went back home, verse 5. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. Okay, a little more Bible context for you, so we frame it up complete. Under law, under the Old Testament law, at this point, David has committed adultery. The punishment for adultery under Old Testament law was that you should die. David, at this point, deserves death. Okay, David knows this. He's a smart man, right? So what David does is he goes, okay, okay, she's pregnant. Now I'm in trouble because someone will figure this out, right? So, so what he does is he sends word to the front to get Uriah to come back, right? So Uriah comes back, and the, word, the language around Uriah is super interesting because when he comes back, he's out of breath. Like he's come back because his king needed him, his buddy needed him. Like he comes back with a rush, and David essentially goes, hey, man, how's the, how's the war? Wait, what? You called me back for that? That's, that's great. Hey, why don't you go home? What does he know is going to happen if he goes home? Dude been at war for a while, hasn't seen his wife. Like, the only problem is he didn't count on Uriah being a man of honor. He didn't count on Uriah being a man of God. He played on his humanity versus his godliness. Right? Uriah decides he's going to go sleep down where the servants sleep. He's going to sleep down by the gate. David hears about this. He's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uriah didn't go home? No, he didn't go home. Get him back in here. This time, I know what we'll do. Why didn't you go? And, and he asked him, why didn't you go? And, and Uriah's like, and this is my own language, right, to put to the story. But essentially he goes, how could I do that when my boys are out there? When, and he talks about the ark, when the presence of the Lord is in battle. How could I do that? Why? Because to Uriah, he wasn't just fighting a battle. To Uriah, this was service to God. And he had certain things that he needed to keep himself pure. Why? So that he could go back and he could help and not disqualify himself. He's living before God. 
So he, he comes in and he asks him and he tells him, hey, how can I do that when my boys are there? And, and, and so David comes up with another plan. I'll get him drunk. Then he'll go home. And so David does. He gets him drunk. And Uriah still doesn't go home. And so David's like, oh, man, I got to do something. So David decides that he's going to send Uriah back to the front lines. Wait, here's what's going to happen. When Uriah gets there, we're going to have the army. He's going to put him on the front line. And we're going to have the army pull away and leave him isolated and let the enemy take care of him. By the way, sin will always make you hide. Confession will always make you free. So David hides, right? We'll put him out on the front line. So he sends him back. And Joab does exactly what David asked. But here's what's weird. Here's what's interesting. They've already surrounded the city. They had it under siege. No one could enter and no one could leave without the army getting them. So what you would do in in war in those days is you would just stay surrounded the city because they couldn't get supplies. They would either starve or they would surrender. One or the other was going to happen. And so what happened is you wouldn't normally attack. But what happens is they send Uriah up to the strongest part of the wall. And Uriah is killed by the enemy because the army moves back. But what's amazing with it is it wasn't just Uriah that died. More men, more sons lost their life because David was hiding sin. That's the context. This is a king who deserves to die, who is hiding sin. Look at the last verse of chapter 11, verse 27. After the time of mourning was over, so after Bathsheba was done mourning, right? David had brought her to his house because Uriah's dead. She don't have a husband no more. Brings her to the house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased who? God. Man, don't ever, don't ever fool yourself that you only live in front of the eyes in front of you. Man, if there's anything we can learn, it's, it's that we have an audience of one. And we live before the living God. And we make our choices before the living God. And, and David found out real quick, he could hide stuff here, but he couldn't hide stuff there. Look at the next verse. Uh, chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord sent. The Lord sent sent Nathan to David. So, so now God goes, okay, I know what you've done. I'm going to send Nathan to you, David. And Nathan is spent, sent on a specific mission, and it's this. He needs to move the king from, from where he is to confession. He's got to move him from here to confession. That's his goal in going to him, right? His goal is to get him. And by the way, this is probably one of the most uncomfortable moments. If you've ever had to confront somebody on something like that, it's terrible. Now double that and go, hey, if this goes badly, I'm going to lose my life. Like literally, you're going to die. The king will put you to death. And so Nathan steps into that context and it says, when he came, when Nathan came to David, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had brought. Wait, what? We're talking about confession. We're talking about confronting something here. And you're talking about cattle and sheep? Yeah. 
except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it. So the poor man raises it. It grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to this man. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took one he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. So he tells him a story. Nathan goes into David. He's here to get David to confess, right? And he tells him the story about a rich man who has a bunch of sheep and cattle and a poor man who only has one little ewe lamb, right? And, and essentially what he plays on is he plays on the fact that David is a just man. And it's in that moment where it's packaged in such a way that David can actually hear and feel. How do we know? Look at verse 5. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As sure, surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Wait, this is about confession, right? But we talked about this, but it ended up there. Yes. You know what I love about this story? Nathan never sacrificed truth. Because sometimes when we get into the idea that it's creative communication, sometimes when we get in the idea that we need to read the situation, that we need to know who's in front of us, that we need to know how to package it so that it's heard and felt, sometimes there's a group of people who, who have taken it upon themselves to go, they've got to be the defender of truth, right? So then they fight this side. Can I tell you that those two are together, they're not isolated. It's not creative communication or truth. It's truth inside of creative communication. Nathan packaged this in such a way that for David, he was able to actually hear it and he was able to actually feel it. He didn't sacrifice truth. I don't know about you, but if you've been around church, somebody somewhere probably wielded truth like a sword. You may even be here and you're missing a few limbs because somebody took truth and they just wielded it and they told you how it was, right? Church, we're called to truth because God is truth. We're not called to cut off limbs. We're not called to cut off limbs. We're called to be ambassadors. We're called to see people move towards Jesus. We're called to see people take steps. What was at stake for Nathan, by the way? What was, what was at stake? King David deserved to what? Die. Listen to these words. This is, this is when David reaches the point of confession. It's verse 13. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. Nathan isn't on a confession mission. He's on a life-saving mission. And what he does in that moment is he packages truth in such a way that the other person can hear it, that he can feel it, and then he can move. We, we that call this home, that call ourselves followers of Jesus, 
we are called to a life-saving mission. What's at stake, church? Eternity is at stake. What's at stake if I don't step up and be an ambassador? Eternity is at stake. So when we come to communicate, when we come to live our lives, can we do it in such a way? Can can we wrap it in such a way that people actually hear us? Why? Because they need to hear and feel so that they can believe and move towards Jesus. Because church, it's too valuable. It's too valuable. The mission is too great. We have to. We have to be intentional. Did you know that every single weekend you come to Heights, there is so much intentionality behind everything that we do. Like, I, you know those guys that do parking? You know those guys? They are vital and they are intentional to this. You know why? Because they're the first taste of ambassadorship that you get. They are the first taste of a welcome. We're glad you're here. And as you come up and there's people at the doors, by the way, you're not just standing at the doors for the sake of standing at the doors because we need you to hand stuff out. You're standing at the doors to go, welcome, welcome. We're so glad you're here. We're so glad you've joined us. We're so glad you're a part of this. Bless you. That as you, as you come in, by the way, at Easter, my favorite testimonies were this. The crowd was so, the crowd was so large, the crowd was so large, but we felt so welcome. Well done. Well done, ambassadors. Well done. And as you come in and, and yes, we hired a guitar player on staff. And yes, he doesn't. He tries to sing, but he doesn't sing. Right? Wait, 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 wait. You mean that Jala leads the band? Yes, that's his role on a weekend. You know why? So that Brad can lead us. So that Brad's not sitting here worried about which chords come next and how it's flowing and if the drummer's on time. And that's, that's been moved. It's intentional. Why? Because we think worship and we think you feeling the presence of God and you being free to worship is that important. We, we, there's intentionality to how Brad leads. There's intentionality to the music that's played. By the way, can you imagine the first time a stained glass window, window went in a church? You can just hear people, what have we become? Right? Or the first time the pipe organ fired up in a church. Oh, no, we're not that church, right? And you may not always like the style of music and you may not always get that part. But there's intentionality because we want people to hear and feel. By the way, we sang a song today. And I can say this because I'm an old Baptist. If I just preached you the theology of that song, the old Baptists in the room would be like, wait, what? But because it's wrapped in such a way. And it's melodically moved. And you hear it and you feel it. It allows you to move into the truth that's there. That you can declare you are making all things new. And you take the dust and you bring life. See how it works? And then Ron gets up, right? And Ron cracks a joke because God gave him the gift of being funny. And some of you are sitting here going, this is church. 
right? But others of you, you came in and you went, I don't know, last time I was in church, it's not for me. No one even smiled. And the first thing you get is Ron cracking a joke and you're like, can I laugh? Everybody else is, right? But we take truth and it's creatively wrapped sometimes in jokes so that you hear it and you feel it and you move towards Jesus. Sometimes we take iPads and we draw because there's that moment when somebody somewhere goes, I've never seen myself in the story like that. Yes, you were given fresh eyes. See how it works? This is intentional. It's intentional that the last words that we hear when we leave here is we love you because we're called to love. We're called to love. As an ambassador, you're called to make people hear and feel so that they are believe and are moved. One last question. If you were God, if you were God, how would you tell humanity that you love them? Let me guess. You'd, you'd start by creating this space for them, right? You, you craft it and you mold it and you put it inside of this universe and then you go, no, 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 I can go one better. There's an unknown universe that they'll never know. But I'll put it inside of it and it's this tiny little blue dot and it's hurtling through space. It's 67,000 miles an hour and, and they don't even have seatbelts, but they're there and it's great. And he creates oxygen and he goes, I don't need it, but they will. And he creates fruit and he creates food and he creates meat. I must be hungry. Meat's good. Right? But then he takes humans and he puts them on the planet and he goes, I love you. Look at everything that I've done. If God is saying I love you, he screams it through the universe. He screams it through the moment you take your favorite food. You know what you're supposed to hear? God whispering, I love you. You thought you were just eating. He's whispering, I love you. And in that moment, he gives them a choice. He says, love is a choice. I need you to understand that. I made the choice to create all of this. And they turn and go the other way. What do you do if you're God? How do you tell him you love him at that point? Well, then you show up on a mountain and you show off your greatness. And you show off how big you are and how thunderous you are. And you know what the people do? Don't let God speak. You speak for us, Moses. You speak to us. If you're God, how do you show the world that you love them? Well, you become one of them. And you walk among them and you live with them. And you declare it over everything you do and you heal. And in the midst of that, at some point, you ever ask the little kid, how much do you, ask your kids, like, how much do you love me? Oh, I love you this much. And God spreads out his arms in the form of Jesus, and he dies for you to declare, I love you this much. What's fascinating is when God leaves, Jesus ascends into heaven, right? And you know what he does? If you're God, then how do you tell the world that I love you? You, you told him in one moment, but how do you continue to tell him? Well, then you send ambassadors. We are, therefore, Christ's ambassadors. As if, though, God were making his appeal. God is declaring he's appealing to the entire world, his love. And guess who it comes through? 
You. Who, me? Yes, you. And you are called to declare God's love to the world. You are called to put God on display and show Him how much He loves them. And you know how you wrap that up? You wrap it up in such a way that they don't just hear that God loves them, but they feel that God loves them. And then they are going to be moved towards God's love for them. You are God's ambassadors. As though He were making His appeal through you. What's at stake if you don't show up tomorrow and be His ambassador? Maybe a better way to put that question, who's at stake? Church, may you, may you, may we, may we wrap our words in such a way that they are heard, that they are felt, and people are moved towards Jesus because it's a life-saving, it's a soul-saving mission. God, we... God, we breathe. God, and in the breathing, we're reminded of your love for us. God, would you allow us, your your people that call heights home for this season, God, would you allow us, where we see you moving within our midst, we see you working. God, would you allow us to represent you well? God, would you give us creativity that allows us to to take your love and display it in such a way that sometimes it's seen, a lot of times it's heard, but no matter what, God, people hear that you love them and they feel that you love them and they are moved towards your love. God, would you allow us as your bride, as your people that are here for today in a little town called Prescott, Would you allow us to leave a really big footprint? Because we took our role as ambassadors seriously. And God, may you rescue the souls of humanity that you give us the privilege of making an appeal on your behalf to. Thank you. Thank you for rescuing us. Thank you for giving us a purpose. Thank you for calling us family. We love you and everybody said.